Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 185, How to Tell Whether Christians and Muslims Worship the Same God. Dr. Tomas Bogardas is an assistant professor of philosophy at Pepperdine University in California. His specialties include metaphysics, epistemology, and philosophy of religion. He's published work in top journals like Philosophical Studies, Ethics, Philosophy and Phenomenological Research, and the International Journal for Philosophy of Religion. I think very highly of his work and was delighted to discover a forthcoming paper by Dr. Bogardas, which was co-authored with his student, Mallory Urban. It's going to be in the journal Faith and Philosophy, and it's called How to Tell Whether Christians and Muslims Worship the Same God. They apply insights from philosophy of language to shed light on how we should approach whether Christians and Muslims are even referring to the same God. I'm delighted to have both of them here today. Dr. Bogardis and Ms. Urban, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Hi, Dale. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Ms. Urban, congratulations on co-authoring a journal article with your professor. Are you a philosophy major? And how did the two of you end up working together on this? Thank you. Yes, I am a philosophy major, and I took a class with Dr. Bogardis on philosophy of religion. And for the final paper of that class, I decided to write on this topic. I've always been fascinated by Islam and how it relates to Christianity. I myself am a Christian, and so it really fascinates me um, just the differences and a lot of the similarities between the two religions. And so um, when I had the opportunity to talk about it in a paper, I decided to do so. And then Dr. Bogardis told me that he also was interested in this topic and wanted to write a paper and asked if I wanted to co-author it with him. And so that's how it happened. That's great. So are you a senior then? Yes, I actually just graduated. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Do you have any particular plans? Yes, uh, I'm going to work for a year and then apply to law school for next fall. Good for you. Excellent. In the recent controversy about the professor, Dr. Larisha Hawkins, who got in trouble at Wheaton College for saying that Christians and Muslims worship the same God, of course, many, especially evangelical Christians, will note what look like serious differences between what Christian theology says about God and what Islamic theology says about Allah. Why aren't those differences enough to show that Muslims are talking about a different God than our Christians? As you say, that controversy is what got this discussion started, at least among contemporary philosophers. The controversy at Wheaton had a lot of philosophers chiming in. And a lot of them responded to that sort of um, knee-jerk reaction that a lot of people have. For example, um, Francis Beckwith at Baylor thinks about this sort of objection. Hey, Muslims think of God as not triune. Christians think of God as triune. Obviously, that's different. And isn't that the question? But as Frank Beckwith and many other people have pointed out, it's possible for two people to be talking about the same person or the same object or the same entity while having radically different conceptions of that thing. So just for example, if you think about the name Barack Obama and the person that that name refers to, Republicans who use that name have one conception of the man and Democrats who use that name have a very different conception of that man. And yet nevertheless, they're referring to the same person. Or we could use the name Donald Trump. I guess that's more up to date. (laughs) And the conceptions might be even 
uh, more radically different. I think so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so again, the point is just it's possible for two groups of people to be talking about the same thing, the same entity, even if they have really different conceptions of that thing. But what about differences of essence, right? Because these aren't just uh, differences that happen to be there, but they're like essential differences. Yeah, I suppose we could try to think of a case like that as well, where we disagree about the essence of a thing. Can you, Dale, or you, Mallory, think of a case like that, where two groups are talking about the same thing, even though they disagree about some essential property of that thing? If you found some animal and you weren't sure what species it, it was, how about a skeleton and someone says this is one species and another one says it's another species, then they can't both be right because it couldn't be both species. And uh, presumably that's essential to the creature, whatever it is. Yeah, that's a good example. Maybe a dinosaur or something. Yeah. So tell us a little more about these philosophers' sort of hot takes or quick reactions and why you thought they didn't kind of go far enough. In the paper, the first argument we consider is from Francis Beckwith. And his argument, uh, first he tries to dispense with the sort of argument we just considered. Muslims and Christians have very different conceptions, so they must be talking about different gods. And then the sort of argument he gives in reply is, well, look, Muslims and Christians are both classical theists. They're both monotheists on each view, on the Christian view and on the Muslim view. There's only one God. There's exactly one God. So he says they've got to be worshiping the same God. It simply cannot be otherwise, he says. So he thinks it follows just from the fact that they're both monotheists, that they're worshiping the same God. But we argue that that's a little hasty. I mean, it could be that with respect to the greatest philosopher, we might both agree there's exactly one greatest philosopher. It doesn't follow, therefore, that um, we think the same philosopher is the greatest philosopher. Maybe I think it's Aristotle. Maybe you think it's Plato. So just from the fact that we're monotheists, we think there's exactly one God. It doesn't follow that we're talking about, let alone worshiping the same God. So we weren't convinced by that argument from monotheism. And then we turned to an argument from Mike Ray at Notre Dame. And his argument is something like this. He says, supposing that there is exactly one God, then if you say that somebody doesn't worship the same God as Christians do, then what you're committed to is saying that um, they're worshiping something else. He says they're so wrong, you're committed to thinking that they're so wrong about what God is like that either the word God in their mouths is meaningless or they're using the word to refer to something else, something he says like a, a human being or an animal or a plant or an inanimate object like a rock or a star. So he thinks those are the options. Either the word is meaningless for Muslims from the perspective of Christianity if they're not worshiping the same God that Christians are worshiping or it refers to something really different from God, like an animal or a plant or a rock. And we just point out there's a third option. It could just be that if Christianity is true, it could be that although Muslims are using the word God or some other divine name, the name is empty for them. It's not meaningless. Empty names can still have meaning, and yet it doesn't refer absurdly to a star or a planet or a human being or anything like that. Then the third argument we look at comes from you, but you see it elsewhere as well. This is a, I think this is a pretty widespread thought. And it goes like this. Christians and Muslims are disagreeing. And they're having theological disputes. For example, the Muslim might say, Allah is not triune or God is not triune. And the Christian might respond, no, you're wrong. God is triune. 
But if there's a genuine contradiction here, if they're genuinely disagreeing, mustn't it be that the two groups are talking about the same entity? Otherwise, it's not a genuine disagreement. It's a merely verbal dispute. And so if you think it really is a genuine disagreement and not a merely verbal dispute, then that's going to entail that they are talking about the same God. And then we just point out that even if two groups are using the same name, it could be that nevertheless they're not referring to the same thing because names have a tendency or at least the possibility of shifting their reference over time. Names can refer to one thing at one time and then later on come to refer to something else. Names can shift their reference. And we use the example in the paper of the name Santa Claus, which if you rewind at least a thousand years, it referred to St. Nicholas, a flesh and blood human being. But then sometime in the 1800s, probably due to the corruption of the information associated with the name and all the stories and myths told about Santa Claus, it sure looks like these days kids who use that name aren't referring to St. Nicholas anymore. They're referring to a creature of fiction, a purely fictional entity. And that's why when you tell kids the news that, you know, there is no jolly Nordic elf delivering presents every Christmas, but there was this really nice guy who lived a long time ago who was a saint. What they conclude is, oh, and they start crying and they say, oh, no, there is no Santa Claus. And that's how we break it to them. Sometimes we say there is no Santa Claus. Uh, and that suggests that we're no longer using the name to refer to St. Nicholas. Uh, so names can do that. They can shift their reference over time. And so it could be that two people or two groups of people could be using the same name and saying things that look like they're contradicting each other. And yet there is no genuine contradiction because the names aren't referring to the same thing. And so in the paper, we share a story that actually involves my daughter. My wife and I decided not to indoctrinate her into the Santa Claus cult. We decided to <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> it's a free country, you know, parents can do what they want, but I just felt kind of weird lying to my daughter about that. Dr. Bogardis, I have to interrupt you here. There, I won't say who this is, but there's a philosopher who we both know who is still bitter from when he was lied to about Santa. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I've heard this story more than once. Somebody will say, my parents told me that there was this omniscient being who was, you know, pretty benevolent, selectively benevolent, watching me all the time, rewarding my good behavior, punishing my bad behavior. Then I came to f come to find out that it was all a lie and it was sort of to control my behavior. And multiple different people have told me that shook their religious faith. <laughs> yeah, right. So what about this God guy? Yeah, that sounds a lot like God. Yeah. Omniscient, sort of rewarding good behavior, punishing bad behavior. Couldn't the God story have evolved in the way the Santa Claus story has evolved? We decided not to expose our daughter to that Santa Claus myth. And so I think what we did was we sort of initiated her into an older name-using practice that predates the reference shift. We told her about St. Nicholas. Um, my wife's German, and we sort of um, incorporated uh, German practices of Christmas. And I think it might be that Germans, the way they use the name, are still referring to St. Nicholas. They haven't undergone the same sort of corruption that uh, we have here in this part of the world using the name. So anyway, I think my daughter was still referring to St. Nicholas. Uh, what we did not warn her against was um, breaking this news to other kids. So one time when she was four years old, we were celebrating Christmas with my family and she overheard her cousins who were about the same age talking about how Santa Claus was going to come that night and deliver presents. And my daughter just had this really puzzled look on her face and she was 100% sincere and she just responded, um, but Santa Claus is dead. <laughs> and you should have seen the look on her cousin's face. It was just, it was an emergency, you know. <laughs> um, there was like three seconds of pause and then 
just whining and crying and all the parents had to get involved and try to smooth it over and explain it away. Um, <laughs> but I think that since my daughter was using the name in a way that still referred to St. Nicholas, there wasn't really genuine disagreement over here. Her cousins were using the name in a different way. And so although it looked from the outside just like a genuine disagreement and even resulted in tears, they weren't actually referring to the same entity. Even if you insist this wasn't a genuine disagreement because they weren't talking about the same thing, it sure looked and sounded like a genuine disagreement. And so this case at least shows that there could be things that look and sound just like a genuine disagreement but aren't due to reference shift. And for all we can tell, maybe that's going on with Christians and Muslims. It sure looks and sounds like a genuine disagreement and has led to a lot of conflict. But it could be a merely verbal dispute due to reference shift. So I guess when I made that blog post, and this might apply, I'm not sure, to some of the other philosophers, I think I was assuming that both Christians and Muslims were referring to a real being. And it's just undeniable that a term can shift from referring from one real being to another real being. But then the Santa Claus case shows that it can also shift from a real being to an imaginary being, to a fiction. And so your point is, well, how do we know that hasn't happened in the case of Islam? Yes, that was the point. (laughs) When the Trinity's podcast returns, our philosophers find a relevant theory in the philosophy of language toolbox. Ms. Urban, tell us about who Gareth Evans is and what is theory about references and how the two of you applied this to the case at hand. Gareth Evans has a nice explanation of the reference shift that we were just talking about. So in the case of, for example, Madagascar, which now um, is the name of an island off the coast of Africa, originally a portion of the mainland was called Madagascar, and that has shifted reference over time. In the paper, you say that uh, Madagascar used to name the city that we now call Mogadishu, but then something happened. Was it a confusion of the map makers? It was a confusion um, on the part of Marco Polo. He started calling this island Madagascar and saying a bunch of things about it. And so people started associating Madagascar as the name of this island when that was not the original source of the name. So earlier when they said Madagascar, they had in mind these features of the city Mogadishu, but then after this confusion occurred, they had in mind this big island off the coast. Right. So it looks like, yeah, a clear case of reference shift from one real thing to another real thing. Right. Here's another cute case in the, that we share in the paper from Gareth Evans. Two babies are born and their mothers bestow names upon them, but a nurse inadvertently switches them and the error is never discovered. And then Evan says, it will henceforth undeniably be the case that the man universally known as Jack is so called because a woman dubbed some other baby with the name. 
And so Evans thinks about these sorts of cases, the Madagascar case and this twin case, and he concludes that although it's important which object was originally baptized with a name or originally dubbed with a name, that's not the whole story, um, because just as Mogadishu was originally dubbed with the name Madagascar or some ancestor of that name, nevertheless, the name shifted reference to an island. And just as one baby might be dubbed Jack, but then another one due to, due to the switch in the hospital comes to be known as Jack, that sort of thing can happen. And Evan's diagnosis was, oh, what's going on is we introduce a name at something like a baptism ceremony. I mean, it doesn't have to be an actual religious ceremony, just any sort of dubbing ceremony. When you say like, I hereby dub the whatever. You can imagine naming your dog or whatever. You just sort of introduce a name. Mm-hmm. And then you share that name with other people and we sort of open, as it were, a file folder on this object. And we label the file folder with the name word. And then we start filling the file folder with information about that thing, or at least we try our best to do it. Misinformation can get in there, as happened with Madagascar and that Jack name. Or you can um, be the victim of malicious rumors, he says, or lies about a person. You can end up getting misinformation in the folder. But the goal is to fill that folder with as much information about the object as we can. And that's usually how it works. I mean, you have a little mental file folder labeled Trump, and you have a lot of information in there. If I asked you to tell me everything you know about Trump, you would just sort of empty that folder. And Evan's thought is that the referent of this name is not the object that best fits that information. That would be a species of a view that philosophers of language call descriptivism. The object doesn't even have to um, fit the information particularly well if the information is a bunch of misinformation. Rather, the referent of the name is whatever object out there, if there is one, that contributed the most information. It was the dominant source of the information in this file folder. So that was Evan's theory. So the original baptism matters for sure, but also um, the information in the file folder matters as well. And the referent of a name is the dominant source of information in that name's what he calls dossier, a little folder that we stuff information into. So it's kind of a hybrid of earlier theories in a sense, isn't it? Yes. Because it has both those elements. Here's a different kind of Trump example. So suppose Trump wants to steal the fame of Madagascar and he looks in a uh, encyclopedia and it only has one paragraph of Madagascar. And so Trump uh, spends a vast fortune, he spends a trillion dollars, he builds an artificial island. It perfectly matches the description in the encyclopedia. And then he says, well, now everybody's talking about my island when they say wonderful things about Madagascar. But according to this theory, that wouldn't work. Right. It's not enough just for an object to perfectly match information in a dossier. Right. The case you give is a nice example of that. Even if his island matched the description better than the encyclopedia, the encyclopedia has got a couple of mistakes in it and uh, says some wrong things about that island. It actually matches Trump's better, the the new island better, but still we want to say it still refers to that big island off Africa. Right, because the source of the information is the island off Africa, not Trump's new island. We could also think about, um, I mean, the differing conceptions that Republicans and Democrats have of Trump. At least one of them's wrong, pretty radically wrong. I mean, he can't be both a stooge of the Russians or whatever and totally incompetent and also not a stooge of the Russians and a brilliant deal maker, etc. Right. So at, at least one of those conceptions is wrong. And yet, nevertheless, both of them refer to the same man. 
according to Evans. In both cases, the dominant source of the information is the man himself, even though for one of those groups, that conception is pretty radically wrong. So in my little uh, just so story, Trump couldn't that easily change the reference of Madagascar. But according to Evans theory, he could eventually cause it to change reference. If most people who use the term Madagascar started to get their their ideas about it from the new imitation, I mean, 100 years from now, couldn't it shift from one island to the other? Yes, right. Because it would be then it would become the dominant source of information in the dossier eventually if enough people started to refer to that island instead of the other one. All right. Well, hopefully he won't hear this podcast because I don't want him to get any ideas. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's the least of our worries, Dale, this island case. (laughs) But on the other hand, uh, as you discuss, this, this is such tricky business. There could be some information in the dossier that's just absolutely required where the reference has been shifted away to another thing or to an imaginary thing. Can you give me an example of that or talk a little more about that? Yes. Yeah, so, for example, in the Santa Claus case that we talked about, kids might assign certain information more dominance, for example, like to Santa Claus being a jolly Nordic elf who gives presents. And when they find out that he's not, in fact, you know, St. Nicholas doesn't have those qualities then they would say, well, that's not Santa Claus. So then like delivering presents on Christmas could be what you call a sine qua non, uh, a without which not condition. Like if he doesn't do that, well, it can't be Santa. Right. I mean, it might not just be that one piece of information because you could break Mm -hmm. it to kids that there's a Santa Claus, but he's not as generous as you thought. Um, (laughs) But it sort of piles up, you know, there's no elf, nobody lives at the North Pole. There's no presents. Nobody flies around on a, on a sleigh, etc. But there was this really nice bishop a long, long time ago. Most kids decide, okay, there, there just is no Santa Claus. There's this other guy called St. Nicholas whose name eventually became Santa Claus. But the thing I was talking about doesn't exist. And you can also think about, um, was it John Allegro who alleged that Jesus Christ, that name, referred to a hallucinogenic mushroom? <laughs> the, mu- the mushroom in the cross was that the name of the book we sort I of can... briefly mentioned it in the paper but suppose that's right suppose the theory is the early church was a clandestine sex and hallucinogenic mushroom cult this is a real theory it seems legit, um, <laughs> seems legit. <laughs> and the early church was using the name jesus christ not to refer to a person not to refer to any any man let alone a god man but rather do a kind of mushroom, a hallucinogenic mushroom. Now, this is like a pretty far out possibility, but suppose we find out that that's true. Suppose it turned out that there was no man, Jesus of Nazareth, but there was this hallucinogenic mushroom and the early church was really into it. I, for one, would conclude, like the kids with Santa Claus, I would conclude, oh man, there was no Jesus. There was just this other thing, this mushroom that people called Jesus. Hmm. But I would think that the thing that I had been talking about all these years didn't exist. There's just this other thing, this mushroom. So something in there, some, the life story or that it's a man, something in there is, is absolutely required. Uh, yeah. If you take all of that away, nothing left. Yes, that's the thought. Yeah, that seems right. And then, I mean, to tie this into the Christian-Muslim debate, the thought is that something similar could be happening with uh, the divine names, even generic divine names like God or Allah, let alone personal names like Yahweh or Jesus. The thought is that um, what's going on in these cases of reference shift 
is that little file folder labeled with a name word gets corrupted with misinformation. In the case of Santa Claus, some myth makers and storytellers started adding a bunch of misinformation. It wasn't even information about St. Nicholas. It was um, too fanciful to be about St. Nicholas. And so, according to Gareth Evans, that information in that file folder no longer had its dominant source as St. Nicholas. Now there was just no source because it was such radical misinformation that the thing to say is it's not about anybody. Hmm. It's not lies or rumors about St. Nicholas. It was just about fiction. Mm-hmm. These storytellers were not talking about any person in particular. And the thought is that from the perspective of Christianity and from the perspective of Islam, the other party has been doing something similar for many years. So just take the second case first. From the perspective of Islam, a lot of things that Christians say about God and about Jesus are uh, misinformation mm-hmm. and in fact pretty radically wrong. Yeah. So from the perspective of Islam, God is not triune. Jesus was not the son of God. He never died mm-hmm. and he wasn't raised from the dead. Right. And so from the perspective of Islam, Christians have been sort of polluting the dossier of the divine name God. Christians have been adding misinformation into that file folder for centuries. And similarly, from the perspective of Christianity, Muslims have been doing something similar to the divine names. Even if Muhammad used the generic divine name that others were using around him, that Christians and Jews were using around him, even if he borrowed it from Christians and Jews, he, from the perspective of Christianity, has been, he and his successors have been adding misinformation into that file folder, just like we did to the name Santa Claus. And so the question we decide in the paper is, was this too much for the dossier to bear? Was this radical misinformation? Is it like the Santa Claus case or is it more like the the Donald Trump case where Democrats have a radically different conception from Republicans, but nevertheless, they're still referring to the same guy. And we propose a test to try to figure out whether it's more like the Santa Claus case where there's been reference shift or more like the Donald Trump case where there's radically different conceptions, but still Donald Trump is the dominant source of information in both of the dossiers. And so we can talk a little bit about that test if you want. When the Trinity's podcast returns, how are we supposed to tell whether or not the dossier for the term God has been so corrupted that the reference of the word has actually shifted? So the test that we propose in the paper is basically just a question that you can ask yourself from either a Christian perspective or from a Muslim perspective. For example, from a Christian perspective, you can say, if I found out that Islam were false and Christianity were true, would Allah still refer to God, the God that I worship? And as a Muslim, you could ask yourself, if I were to find out that Christianity were false and Islam were true, would God as as Christians use it, refer to Allah, the God that I worship. And depending on what information you consider to be the most dominant in the dossier of God or Allah, that will determine how 
you answer that question. I mean, it's sort of just generalizing from the Santa Claus case. What we ask children to entertain when we tell them the truth about Santa Claus is, suppose you were wrong about this jolly Nordic elf business. And in fact, the truth is yada, yada, yada. And then we fill in details about St. Nicholas. Would Santa Claus still exist? And all the kids say no. And so what Mallory just sketched is asking similar sorts of questions to Christians and Muslims to sort of test the way we're using these names. And so, of course, Christians think Christianity is true and Muslims think Islam is true. But they can still entertain these hypothetical questions. What if Christianity were false? There is no trinity. Jesus was not the son of God. He was not raised from the dead by God, etc. Now we ask Christians and Muslims, we ask them both, actually. Suppose the world turned out that way. Could the word God, the name God, as Christians use it, still refer? Is there still something answering to that name? So Christians, bad news, there's no trinity, there's no incarnation, there's no resurrection, etc. But there's still an omniscient creator of the world who spoke through prophets, etc. So some of the things you believe about God are still true. Some pretty crucial things you might think. So on this little scenario we've just sketched, does the name God find a target? Does it find a referent? And we also ask the other question, um, suppose Islam were false and Christianity were true. No, God was not revealing anything to Muhammad. All of that was fabrication or hallucination, etc. God is in fact a trinity. The incarnation happened, the resurrection happened, etc. Now, ask both groups. Ask Christians to participate in the, in the use of the name Allah as Muslims use it and ask Muslims about their own use of the name Allah. On the scenario we just sketched, does that divine name find a target? Could there still be an Allah in all that? Would Muslims conclude, oh wow, Allah's really different than we thought. Turns out Allah's a trinity and had a son who died and then was raised from the dead. Would they say that? Or would they, like the children in the Santa Claus example, say, ah, oh, there is no Allah. There's just this other thing that Christians have been calling God. So I think that's a central question to resolving the dispute, those two sort of hypothetical questions asked of both groups. And we invite the reader to ask those questions of him or herself. And we think that'll help settle the question. That's a difficult thought experiment for serious uh, Christians and Muslims to pull off, I think. It's, it's such a big if. Well, what if all this these distinctive things about your religion turned out to not be so? And what if you, what if you even converted would you think that your term that you use now still referred? It's tough. I mean, we're asking the reader, what if, or at least Christian and Muslim readers, we're asking them, what if every, all the beliefs that you hold most dear were false? <laughs> and these other things that you thought were really, really false, what if they turned out to be true? Now, what would you say? <laughs> it's not exactly all that you hold dear, but it's the things that you hold as against this competing group. Uh, if all those things that are at issue were false, right? Because some of the things you hold dear would still be, you know, there's a creator. Oh, so yeah, you're right. Now, using the Santa Claus case to illuminate this, I think it's helpful, although the Santa Claus case is a case where a term shifts from a real referent to nothing. So it, fail, it then fails to refer, right? Once the information yeah. in the dossier has changed enough, then it's no good. It's a failure as a name, sort of. But of course, the other kind of shift would be from one being to the other. You didn't discuss this in the paper, 
but um, a Christian or a Muslim might think that the other religion resulted from demons or jinn or something, right? You know, Muhammad has this encounter in a cave when he's praying off alone, and he's accosted and told to recite by somebody. And the one accosting him is supposed to be the angel Gabriel. But a Christian might well think that whatever accosted Muhammad, that was not God or a legitimate messenger of God. And then an obvious option would be, well, he just made the story up. He wasn't accosted by anybody. Uh, Nobody revealed the Quran to him. He just came up with it. But then another theory would be, no, somebody did reveal it to him, but it wasn't God. Do you not discuss those in the paper just because that's such an inflammatory uh, (laughs) suggestion? Mallory, do you want to take this one? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm sure some Christians have thought that. Um, I don't know that Muslims have thought it. They tend to go more for like the Christians and Jews have just kind of screwed things up and lost information and corrupted it through, I don't know, human stupidity, basically. But I mean, they could. They, they could have suggested something like that. Yeah. My initial thought with that is, I mean, look at the way that Muslims describe God. I wouldn't call their description of God to be demonic. Um I think it's important to recognize the similarities between the two conceptions of God. And I don't think that it's necessarily opposite conceptions. I think that's a good answer. I mean, if you think about idols and false gods from the Old Testament, if you ask me to imagine what sort of religion would be instituted by a genuine demon, I think it would look more like that, especially mm-hmm. with like calls for child sacrifice and creating idols, etc. I wouldn't expect something like Islam to be developed where there's only one God and we owe him our obedience and allegiance and try to engage in behavior that is, you know, we would consider good and moral. That's not what I expect would expect a demon to come up with. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just an extremely crafty demon, I guess. But one other thought I had was um, even if there were some other entity in that in the cave delivering this information, that's not enough to guarantee that the name Allah comes to refer to an actual being, maybe a demonic entity or something else. It would depend on whether this, this being in that cave was just intending to spread misinformation the way that, for example, I forgot the name of the author, but whoever wrote that poem, um, The Night Before Christmas, where we get a lot of the Santa Claus myth from. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly what was going on in that author's head. But it could be that he just thought this is a really funny, interesting poem. And whether it's about St. Nicholas or not, I don't really care. It's just kind of a fun poem. And since that information got taken up into the dossier, the name shifted not to some other being and not to the author, but to fiction. Something similar could be happening in the cave, whoever the source of the information was. If the source of that information intended to tell lies about God, it could still be that the name Allah refers to God. If the source of that information intended to just tell a funny story or an interesting story, it could be that the name shifted to fiction, to nothing at all. Or, I mean, it could be that the source of the information intended to tell stories about a particular being, some supernatural entity who's not God. Then the name could shift to that supernatural being. But I just want to recommend to your listeners, I mean, if they're interested in this sort of question, there's a really interesting paper by um, Megan Sullivan, who's a philosopher at Notre Dame, semantics for blasphemy it's called and she uses this sort of gareth evans framework to give an account of why religious believers do well to guard against blasphemy Hmm. 
Because what blasphemy is, is misinformation about God, saying something false, even radically false, about God. And so if Gareth Evans is right, that one of the chief dangers of blasphemy is that by filling up the dossier of a divine name with misinformation, we might lose our linguistic contact with the divine. It could be that if we put too much misinformation in there, something will happen to the divine name, like what happened to the name Santa Claus. And so that's why, again, religious believers do well to make sure only true things are said about God so that misinformation doesn't spread. So I would just recommend that paper to your listeners. It's pretty short and very clear and really interesting. Great. We'll put a link to that on the blog post for this episode. I think it's helpful to also consider the wider context of reference shifting because it's not like uh, Allah is the only interesting case here. It seems to me that most, if not all, of the names that the Bible uses to refer to God, at one time, I'm thinking they were only used in pagan religions. So take Hatheos, the God, or just capital G, God, from the Greek New Testament. Surely there was a time when there were no Christians or Jews that were using Greek, and yet the phrase Hatheos, the God, was in operation. It probably referred to Zeus and probably to other beings, too. But yeah, this this doesn't make us think that we're doing something untoward by using it now. I mean, it's if it's shifted, it's shifted. If we thought it hadn't shifted, I guess we wouldn't still be using it because we'd be afraid it would it would refer to Zeus or in Hebrew El and Elohim and El Shaddai. I'm pretty sure that scholars of ancient religion think that those terms were used in various languages, maybe even earlier than the oldest parts of the Old Testament. And yet, once they've shifted, they've shifted. So, go back to Allah. Who knows what the very first use of this was for, but we do know that it has shifted to God, the Christian God, and the Jewish God, because Christians and Jews were using that before Muhammad, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Before he came around. And of course, a lot of uh, Arabic speaking and other types of Christians, even, they still use Allah to refer to God. The only question is, has it shifted again, I guess? Well, I think it's a really helpful paper. I think without being polemical, without being political, without just giving sort of knee-jerk answers that sound good or, or what people want to hear, I think you're giving a principled kind of formula for how to approach the question. So I really appreciate it. And again, congratulations on this. It's coming out in Faith and Philosophy 2017, and we'll have a link probably for the preprint and for the official uh, journal article on the blog post for this episode. So, Dr. Bogardis and Ms. Urban, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dale. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, we didn't actually answer the question about whether Christians and Muslims are referring to the same God or not. In next week's episode, I continue my conversation with Dr. Bogardus and his student, Ms. Mallory Urban, and we go a little bit beyond the methodology. We talk about people's experiences of conversion and what the official Islamic doctrine is about the Christians and their God, and official Roman Catholic statements about Islam. We go more into some other information that you're going to find relevant as you answer this question for yourself. So don't miss that episode next week. This week's thinking music is the track, The Ombak, which is by Little Glass Men from the album Simplify. 
We got a couple of new reviews in international iTunes stores recently. In the UK, a user named Andrew McKinley gives us five stars, and their subject line is The Unimportant Doctrine of the Trinity. Andrew says, Trinities is a very worthwhile podcast if you're interested in Christian theology. Most of the episodes deal with the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, although other topics are also addressed. It is with the Trinity, however, the podcast is primarily concerned, and it is one of the best resources on this topic that I've come across. There isn't much interaction with modern Trinity theology. Some might think this is a good thing. The host, Dale Tuggy, is a Unitarian. That is, he believes that the Father and only the Father is God. Sometimes he grinds this axe, others he doesn't. He has certainly given Trinitarians a fair go at making sense of the traditional doctrine, and his own arguments against it are some of the best available. I'm less sanguine about Christianity than Tuggy is, if something like the Trinity is false. The comparison with the Reformation is not apt, as the Reformers thought the Catholicity of the doctrine was something much to be sought after. Remaining, then, is the relative unimportance of the doctrine of the Trinity in the economy of salvation. Perhaps this is why God has allowed the error to persist. If so, one is entitled to ask, why bother with it then? Life's short enough already. So I amble on trying to make sense of it, repeating after Torrance, there is no God behind the back of Jesus Christ. The only negative I would mention is the intro and outro, a bit too treacly for my tastes. Thanks for your comments, Andrew. Sorry about the treacliness. I do interact with contemporary views on the Trinity, although it's usually analytic theologians and not just standard academic theologians. And I guess the reason is that I can understand what the analytic theologians are saying well enough to agree with it or disagree with it. And I'm not always able to do that with other theologians. I would like to have more on, however. If you talk about the reformers in the Trinity, you have to distinguish the magisterial reformation from the radical reformation. Quite a lot of people in the Radical Reformation went back to the Bible, didn't see the Trinity there, and just went on without it. Can you have Christianity without a doctrine of a triune God? Well, it seemed to do rather well in about the first three centuries, so I think we have to say yes to that. Again, thanks for your comments, Andrew, and thanks for listening. Another user from Japan, their username is Caruso Redbeard gives us four stars, and the subject line says, Good Unitarian Discussion slash Analysis. They say, Dale Tuggy does a great job of promoting and defending the Unitarian view of God and its corresponding messiology. One caveat is that the views are notably from the perspective of Christendom, not that of Torah Judaism. Thanks so much for your comments. I do unapologetically identify as Christian, I think Christianity is a distinct religion from Torah Judaism, and uh, I'm not one of those Unitarians who's into all this Hebrew roots stuff. I think that most of that is wrong-headed, that a non-Jewish person really has no reason to pursue Jewishness and Jewish culture. I think a Gentile can just follow Christ, as has been done since the time of Paul. Having said all that, I would like in the future to get some Jewish biblical scholars and possibly other Jewish scholars on, because I do think that they have some interesting insights about interpreting what we call the Old Testament and what one of my Jewish philosopher friends calls my current testament. 
If you'd like to leave an honest rating and review of the Trinity's podcast in the iTunes store for your country, please do. We really appreciate these reviews, and they will help other people to find out about the podcast. And as you may have noticed, I read them on the podcast. There could come an exception to this, but I haven't found one yet. So keep them coming. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.